You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, this is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm at Unsiloed. And today I'm with Charlie Whelan, who teaches at Dartmouth, actually is an alum of Dartmouth, and he's written a bunch of really, really good books. The ones that I have read include Naked Statistics, and it's not as sexy as it sounds, but it's pretty damn good. Naked Economics, Naked Money, which I couldn't find. It's around here somewhere, but I guarantee you I read it. You've also written, I think, what we might call a self-help book and a novel. This one's called Ten and a Half Things No Commencement Speaker Has Ever Said. Kind of fun. And then a novel called The Rationing. Okay, so welcome, Charlie. Good to be with you. Well, I have to start by asking the question, like, why would you write a novel? I mean, from the other book, I discovered that you always wanted to be a writer. Did you have in mind writing a novel early on in life, or was this something that kind of came to you later in life? I had been writing fiction since I was in graduate school. And in fact, while I was working on my dissertation, I would amuse myself by writing screenplays. I'd never written a novel, but I'd written fiction. One of those screenplays was actually good enough that I ended up selling it. So one year in graduate school, my largest source of income, which wasn't large, was from the sale of a screenplay to a Southeast Asian production company. So I always had in the back of my mind this idea of telling stories, in part as just a break from my day-to-day life. So if you know what a dissertation is like, anything that's not the dissertation is a welcome relief. But I really appreciate storytelling. I'm an avid reader of fiction. And so it wasn't a giant leap. I've been writing short stories my whole life. I still write short stories. It was not a giant leap to sit down and say, you know what, I've got a story I want to tell. It's most convenient to tell it in fictional format, so I'm going to write a novel. Yeah, I'm a big novel reader too. And and I think that when I teach, I try to use stories as a way of communicating information because although formulas and abstract reasoning is something, models, something that's very powerful and in economics, I think for a lot of us, we need to either have images or we need to have narrative. We need to have some stories. In fact, models only sink in when you have some kind of story attached to them, I think. Yeah, and I think the brain scientists have now firmly established that, that the brain is just wired to absorb material in some format that approximates a story. Because there's kind of a beginning, a middle, an end. There's a reason things that happen this way. There's some causality and so on. It can be abused. But I do think that that's just a really important way to convey information. It can accompany the math. It can make examples of the models. But it's always better to add a story to a point that you're trying to make. Now, these three books, the naked books, they're filled with stories. They're filled with anecdotes. And this is kind of why I love them so much is because each of those stories illustrates a point. In fact, the Naked Economics book, I think this is probably the only economics book. And by the way, I do assign these books for my uh, first year MBA students. I always advise them to get these. And this economics book is one that doesn't have a single graph in it. How is it possible? Is this even allowed? How did you get this through the publisher without any graphs? I think that was a selling point. That was a feature, not a bug. Back to what we were talking about before, people respond to stories better. And I'm a person who will lie on the couch reading the print version of the newspaper And when there's some quirky story that I recognize as an externality or as a property rights issue 
or something else that illustrates some foundational economics concept, I just rip it out. I mean, people next to me on the airplane must think I'm a strange person as I rip pages out of The Economist magazine and stick the articles into my pockets. That's where a lot of those stories come from. And then I am somebody who's traveled a lot. I've taken students to Rwanda and Madagascar, and we've met military dictators, and I've been in strange places in rural China. And of course, if you do enough of that, you also encounter situations and stories mm -hmm. that have at their core public policy themes, economics themes. So the combination of the travels and the constant clipping just gives me this arsenal of examples that both resonate with students and help illustrate these really important points. They might just wonder what you're doing with this paper anyway. Like, what is a newspaper, depending on how old they are. <laughs> right, exactly. That's why I don't read on a computer. I can't. Sure, I suppose I can electronically file the story, but it's not the same as having an accordion file with Coast mm -hmm. theorem stories. Right. Of which they're great. I mean, I've got a story, a clip from the New York Times Magazine about a polluting company that just bought an entire town. It was cheaper for them to buy 300 houses that their ash was falling on than it was to ameliorate the pollution. And that's, of course, exactly what the Coast Theorem says should happen if it's cheaper. Naked Law will be your next book. Have you thought of that? I have more background in economics, so I do have the underpinnings, whereas I do not have any legal theory or education, so it would be a more of a reach. The other thing about these books is that you can tell when you're reading these books that these are really written by a teacher, someone who is continuously trying to communicate complex concepts to people who might be learning them for the first time. What I find interesting is that even if you're very familiar with the concepts, if you come at them from alternative perspectives, it continues to illuminate. And that's really, I think, the beauty of teaching. But you also are comfortably within the academy. And the academy has, a, I would say, a, an ambiguous relationship to teaching, where research is really what's rewarded. And translational research or teaching is sort of seen as a necessary evil to some extent. Is that business model sustainable, do you think, going forward? Or do you see a great unbundling taking place between the teaching and, and the research side of university life? I don't know if it's going to be an unbundling or just some other form of creative destruction, but the model cannot stand. If I were younger and more entrepreneurial, I would take it on myself. I would redesign the American university from scratch and build a Toyota instead of a Mercedes? What is it that you actually really need? What can you do cost-effectively? What can you get rid of? Because I mean, that really is the genius of Toyota. It's not better than Mercedes. They just do everything that you need more dependably and more efficiently. A lot of people don't appreciate that when they pay their sixty dollars or $70,000 to go to a Dartmouth, they are both buying an undergraduate education and heavily subsidizing this research enterprise, which is really important, but it's not clear that America's undergraduates should be paying for it. And I also think, and based on your question, I think you might agree, that some of this research, if not much of it, is of tenuous value. And so I think the question for higher education is, how can we keep the best of the research? How can we improve our teaching? And how can we make it affordable for the people who need and want a four-year degree. And honestly, I don't think enough people are thinking about that. Mm -hmm. When you read this book here, The Ten and a Half Things No Commencement Speaker Has Ever Said, you start off the very first chapter, if that's what it is, the very first point that you're trying to make is that there's a lot more that you can get out of your university education than, say, technical skills. 
So when you're teaching, what are you trying to communicate? Are you trying to communicate a particular way of thinking, a high-level set of thinking? When I talk about my MBA students, when I talk to them many years after they've graduated, they will frequently say that the thing that they remember the most and the thing that they found most useful was not like how to do a discounted cash flow or how to interpret a regression coefficient, but really more about ways of thinking and, and ways of engaging with information, engaging with people and so forth. I use the expression that I want my students to internalize the material, which is to say that it becomes part of them in a way that they simply can't forget. So if you study economics and you delve into concepts like a negative externality, where your behavior spills over and affects somebody else, I don't really care if they can draw the triangle on the graph. And the reason I steer away from the graphs is if I don't do it frequently enough, I forget where the triangle goes and I have to figure it out again. But if I teach externalities appropriately, they will never forget what it is. They will just instantly recognize any situation, whether it's noise from a neighboring apartment or climate change, as an externality. So what I strive to do is just create a relationship with the material where it becomes part of them permanently. They just understand, you know, once you understand gravity, it's not like you forget it. And I increasingly give almost no exams and depend instead on projects and discussions and other kinds of things that are more likely to stick with you. And I'll tell you the thing that kind of motivated my thought on this is I actually, as you alluded to in the introduction, went to Dartmouth. I was required to take, I believe, 33 classes because we're on a quarter system. When I began teaching college, I did a mental inventory of the classes that I had taken as an undergraduate. And there were about 10 or 11 of them, roughly a third, that affected me profoundly, where I could remember having a discussion or doing a paper that just shifted my worldview. I remember driving down to a private school in Concord, interviewing an African-American kid who was there from St. Louis, and he just sat across from the table for me and explained how he no longer felt comfortable in any world. He'd left behind a neighborhood in St. Louis that was poor and black. He was now at this elite, mostly white private school. He didn't feel like he fit in there, but by going there, he kind of left folks behind in St. Louis. And like the fact that I can still describe that conversation to you means that it became part of my understanding of the world. And so there were 10 or 11 classes that had those kinds of experiences, just shaped how I affected the world. Then there were another 10 or 11, like another third They were fine. I learned basic concepts, European history. I did my language requirements and so on. They were functional and that they taught me things, but they didn't affect the trajectory of my life. And then the last 10 or 11, I couldn't remember. Like I got to class number 22 and I couldn't list. Like, I don't remember what else I took. And clearly if I didn't remember taking the class, then it didn't have a very profound impact on me. And so I said, I only want to teach classes that are in that first bucket that really shape the way people think about some kind of subject. Well, so that means that you weren't equipped with the tools at the beginning of your education to make the distinction between those experiences which were going to be useful and those that weren't. No, I would say I was a very scattershot undergrad. I think most of us probably are. I think I'm a better professor for having been not always a great student. By the time I was a junior and certainly as a senior, I was way better at choosing the classes, even time of day, kind of subject that would have the most impact. So I became a better student. The classes that I took became better as well. It was kind of a symbiotic relationship. But no, I certainly arrived in college 
not nearly as focused as we would hope undergrads would be. On the other hand, it did make me into a better student. In this book, you talk about how students, they also don't know what they should be pursuing. And so they, they often focus on grades or they focus on some other metrics that are independent of their passion, their curiosity, and so forth. Is this something new or is this something that has been around in one form or another forever? Humans always respond to external rewards that may be a pay increase, it may be a yellow star in elementary school. I do think, and I'd be interested what you think about this, that the speed of the music, it speeded up because of great inflation, because of perceived competition. Certainly for high school students applying to college, the common app has meant that people are applying to more schools, which creates a more confusing environment for those schools selecting students. I do think that there is a sense that students have to run faster in response to these external rewards than they did before. Now, I don't know if that's a perception or a reality. In any event, it does strike me as an unhealthy situation. If I had a magic wand and could get rid of one facet of undergraduate education, it would be grades. The problem is that in the absence of grades, you get an absence of work sometimes. I mean, these things do work as a motivational tool. So I'm always asking students, how can we do this better? And sometimes business schools, I think Tuck has grades, but they're not allowed to reveal them to prospective employers. Harvard Business School has the high pass, the pass, the fail. I do think there's a better system out there. I just haven't figured out what it is. Well, I mean, companies have the same problem. If they don't offer any extrinsic reward at all, then they're faced with slacking and shirking and so forth. But if they emphasize it too much, then people lose the intrinsic motivation, right, to work. Yes. And it's a really delicate balancing act. You know, I read these articles about Amazon where somebody's watching every keystroke and monitoring how you spend every minute. And that to me just seems like hell on earth because first of all, it's not how creativity happens. It's not even the most productive way to do work. I mean, I find that I can work for an hour and a half. And then if if I don't take a 10 or 15 minute break, my productivity falls off so sharply that it's, it's much better to take a break. I think daydreaming is when you come up with ideas that are worth coming up with. So that seems horrible. On the other hand, it'd be terribly demoralizing to be in a work environment where the people who are sleeping with their face on the desks are getting paid the same as you and not let go. So somehow you got to strike the balance. And I think that's true in an academic setting as well. If you're not going to write your next naked book on law, maybe you can write it on happiness. Because I think you're not the only economist that's taken a big interest in happiness. And I think we're at the point now where we can even talk about happiness economics as a field. And we'll start to see courses in happiness economics pop up in economics departments and not just in psychology departments and business school. If you were to summarize what you've learned about this or what would be the contents of the book on happiness, naked happy economics, what would it be? The introduction would definitely say this matters. I do think it's a really important field of study, both at the individual level, so understanding what it is that makes us happy, and it's not necessarily making a ton of money, although making enough to be comfortable certainly matters. At the same time, it matters a lot in the aggregate. We're really bad at measuring at the macro level what a good life looks like. GDP was never meant to be the measure of whether our economy is a success or not. It's kind of a crude measure of growth. It's a nice tool for comparison when you're comparing Zambia with the Netherlands. Clearly, the Netherlands has much higher GDP per capita. 
all the PPE and everything is contributing to GDP right now, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, that's part of the problem with GDP. When they clean up all the disasters from the storms in Texas, that all counts for GDP, even though we'd be better off if the storms ever happened. So it's a terrible measure of overall well-being. The only problem is we haven't come up with one that we can agree on that's better, but we really want to measure things like life satisfaction, mm -hmm. not necessarily happiness, although that's a component of it, but this concept of well-being, which is not the same as whether or not we've produced 4.1% more widgets and built more prisons and done more activity that puts carbon in the air. You know, there are no debits for environmental damage. There's no distinction between whether you're doing life-saving surgery or incarcerating somebody. So GDP is a lousy measure. And at the same time, you know, when I talk to my undergrads, they're very confused about what they should do to lead a life of meaning and purpose. There's kind of a craving for that, particularly as we become more secular and people don't, they're not necessarily following religious teachings. And we're getting better at understanding what those things are. I mean, broadly speaking, we know that having friends and social contacts is crucially important. Doing things with purpose, even if it's volunteer activities, is really important. Having a good marriage is really important. Being healthy is important. So we're getting better at understanding what makes people unhappy. We know what makes people unhappy. Long commutes yeah. are just a happiness killer. So this notion that people would drive an hour, hour and a half each way so they can have a bigger house is just a recipe for unhappiness. That's the short version of the book, but I think there's a lot there that can broaden and deepen our understanding of economics. I think one of the things that you point to as driving behaviors which might reduce happiness is this idea that people want metrics. They want some way of measuring the extent to which they're, they're successful. And money's there. Income is there as a potential metric. And all these other things that you do, you don't get graded on. No one ever hands you a blue ribbon for being a good husband or wife or a parent or whatever. And I think when people look back at the end of life, when you see these movies and read books and talk to people who are older they have part of the maturity process is gaining a more complete understanding of these things. I mean, people don't usually lament that they didn't make more money. They think about the relationships and family and other things that they leave behind. The question is, how can we teach young people to weight those things appropriately at the beginning of their life? So they're not sitting there in their 80s looking back saying, boy, if only I hadn't neglected my friends and my family, I would have led a more complete life. And again, when you've got money and grades and other things that are measurable and comparable, it's hard to put the appropriate value on these other softer, but arguably more important measures of well-being. Should that be part of the undergraduate educational experience? I mean, I think maybe in the past, people expected that you would learn this from outside of the university, but now increasingly the university is being counted on to be the place where you learn everything. I could certainly see an interdisciplinary class. And for the record, I'm a huge fan of interdisciplinary teaching and classes. Everyone talks about it. Not enough people do it. I actually co-teach a class on the future of capitalism with an economist and a political theorist. And it's not just I teach a third, they teach a third, you show up on your day. We're all three in the room all the time. And it is fantastic because we've got shared knowledge, but also different views, different training. And it really brings different lights to bear on this topic in a way that's really interesting. I could see a course on living the good life. 
And maybe you have someone from the English department talking about the good life in literature, because God knows theorists and writers have been talking about that for a really long time. And then you've got some psychologists talking about what we've learned about what is actually most rewarding, what the brain tells us about what makes us happy, and some economists talking about the economics of happiness and unhappiness and pain. I'll give you an example of why getting this right matters so much for economics. For a long time, I think both the left and the right, although maybe more the left, considered that you know if you were unemployed, the problem was you didn't have enough money. That if we just gave you money, then you could buy the stuff that you couldn't buy when you didn't have a job. And I think if you read like Angus Deaton and Case's book about deaths of despair, mm -hmm. what we realize is that unemployment is much, much worse than not having money. It's about feeling a lack of worth. It's about being disconnected from your previous social space. And money's not going to make up for that. So we've got to somehow build a capitalist system that doesn't leave people feeling like they're totally disconnected from it if they happen to lose a job. If we look at the current pandemic, one of the consequences has been uh, reduction in social interactions, reduction in work. Maybe commuting has been eliminated for the most part, which might be a, a good thing. Do you think that we're doing a good enough job of thinking through all the different trade-offs involved in this current pandemic and this crisis? Or are people focusing on metrics that are too narrow? I think they're focusing on metrics that are too narrow. I also think that having done public policy for my whole adult life now, people are just really bad at trade-offs in public life. They just can't get their mind around the fact that something is not all good or all bad. And of course, the pandemic is one big trade-off. If you want to minimize deaths and transmission, you got to do some things that are very costly to the economy. Now, the good news is some things have big impact in reducing transmission at relatively low economic costs. Wearing a mask is really not that economically costly. It fogs up my glasses, but other than that, so everybody should have been wearing masks as soon as we thought that they were reasonably valuable. On the other hand, keeping elementary school students out of school seems to have relatively little impact on the transmission of the disease because the young don't seem to be carriers and has a huge impact on the social and emotional well-being of those kids. So we might want to do less of that and more of some other things, but that's just not the way we've had this discussion. Early on, people would say, well, you can't do that. We can't open businesses or schools. People will die. Mm -hmm. And my response was, well, if you don't want anyone to die, just shut down all the highways. 40,000 people are going to die this year on the highways. You can stop that. But we've made an implicit decision that the benefits of being in cars and trucks outweighs what is a predictable loss of life. And we just aren't able mm -hmm. to process that this is not an either or, that it's kind of what can we do to have the greatest impact at the least cost. And economists are used to thinking about that. But we're not great at communicating it to the public, and the public is not used to thinking about that in public life. They do it in private life all the time. I think there's been a profound lack of statistical literacy and, and economic literacy in the general discussions around coronavirus and the remedies that we're, we're implementing. To what do you attribute that? I mean, humans have never been great probabilistic thinkers, never been great economics thinkers. But I feel like at this point in our history, 
economics, statistics. These are things which are necessary skills that people should have just to survive in, in the modern marketplace. And yet we don't see these things being taught in, say, high schools. I, when I hear that people are learning trigonometry in high school and they're not learning statistics, I, I just don't understand what, why that's the case. Is there a good explanation for that besides institutional friction or maybe there's some vested interest group of trigonometry teachers that are standing in the way? Never underestimate the power of inertia when it comes to K through 12 education. And I say that as someone who teaches education policy. To my mind, there's no defense for not teaching basic statistics and kind of program evaluation, also understanding causality when you're teaching trigonometry. And I say that as somebody who just despised trigonometry. I just hated it even in the moment. I will say that the human mind is not terribly well wired to deal with things like risk, long-term trade-offs and the like. One of the great innovations in economics has been behavioral economics, kind of understanding when and why we're not as rational as we might be. And part of that is that just risks are hard to process. What's the difference between a one in a thousand risk and one in 10 million? I mean, they're both unlikely, but to an economist, they're radically different. To someone on the street, they're both things that aren't likely to happen. You know, my favorite anecdote from Naked Statistics, which is straight up true, is a conversation I had with a guy who was explaining to me patiently why he was afraid of flying. And he was telling me that while he was smoking a cigarette, sitting on his motorcycle. <laughs> thinking, dude, I can tell you what's going to kill you, and it's not going to be an airplane. Behavioral economics has told us or informed us why these heuristics are not very good. And we can get better at framing things for people so that they have a greater understanding of this. I'll give you an example of that. The, I think it was maybe the FDA. So if you look at some of the anti-smoking campaigns of late. In the old days, it was the photo of your blackened lungs and you're going to die of cancer and all those scare tactics. And they didn't work terribly well for young people. And the reason is that most young people think they're going to quit. So, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm going to quit smoking. It turns out they probably won't, but they think they will, which is how they can dismiss it. And they just think they're going to be among the lucky. That's, you know, we don't process long-term costs very well. So the FDA pivoted, and a lot of the anti-smoking advertisements now focus on turning your teeth yellow, and it's bad for your skin. And all of this stuff is, of course, trivial compared to the fact that you're likely to die of heart disease or lung disease. But if you're 19, you care a lot about the color of your teeth more than you do about getting lung cancer. So it's actually a brilliant use of behavioral economics mm -hmm. to help focus on what the 19-year-old brain is actually thinking. I think in business school, there's a big debate about the extent to which we can realistically expect to debias our students. So do you actually try to debias them or do you try to just redirect the biases in, in ways that are less harmful? I'm a big fan of redirecting. So for example, organ donation. We don't have enough donor organs. It's an unnecessary tragedy. People die on the waiting list, particularly for kidneys where we've all got a spare the evidence suggests the easiest way to do that, to get rid of the shortage, is to just go from an opt-in system to an opt-out, which is just straight-up behavioral economics. The old-school rational actor model of economics would say that everybody walks into the Department of Motor Vehicles with a fixed idea of whether they want to be an organ donor or not. And if you have to sign up to be an organ donor, then people who want to be organ donors will sign up. 
And if you don't, they won't sign up. And regardless of what the process looks like, you're either an organ donor or you're not. Well, what we know about behavioral economics is most people just kind of do what's easiest. You kind of point them in one direction, that's the direction they walk. And so if you have an opt-out system, the way it works is you're an organ donor unless you sign saying you don't want to be. And because most people just accept the default option, far more people will walk out of the Department of Motor Vehicles as organ donors than if you have an opt-in system, which is where you actually have to do some work to become an organ donor. And in countries that have tried that, the number of donors has gone up and therefore the number of organ shortages have gone down. And so that and just the simple kind of default bias is a very clever fix. You see it in retirement, for example. Increasingly, companies will sign you up and say, we're going to take money out and put it in your 401k unless you tell us not to. And not remarkably, that means that savings rates go up. So I think there are a lot of things like that that you can do to kind of recognize our shortcomings and overcome them without making us better thinkers, more long-term thinkers. It's not going to change the brain. It just accepts the reality of our limited brain capacity. You kind of sharpened your teeth in the world of policy. You're a public policy economist. What's happening right now in the world, to be sitting where you are and observing what's happening, it must be fascinating for you. You must be dipping into your public policy skills and trying to make sense of what's happening. And I can understand why ordinary people might have difficulty with probabilities and difficulty with statistics and trade-offs. We, we expect more from our policymakers. What's your take on kind of the difficulties of implementing and executing good policy during this pandemic? Is it just a matter of lack of preparation, or do you see the policymakers as being constrained in ways that, that make it impossible for them to implement good policy? I would say that the COVID epidemic has forced to the surface problems that were already there. At the top of my list would be extreme political polarization that I think has become disabling from a public policy standpoint. And when I say polarization, I don't mean ideological difference of opinion, because I think ideological difference of opinion is natural. It's always been the case. It's quite healthy. But what characterizes it, if you have intellectually honest people with an interest in improving policy outcomes, is you come together, you recognize your differences of opinions, you look for common ground, e.g. minimizing the transmission of COVID or expediting vaccination or something like that, we find areas of overlap and then we proceed. I mean, functional government is not about all of us agreeing. It's about us harnessing healthy disagreement into some common course of action, like winning World War II, overcoming the Great Depression. The current environment, hyperpartisanship, is where I support the Yankees, you support the Red Sox. If you say he's out, I say he's safe. You say he's safe, I say he's out. Where it becomes almost tribal and we're focused on our differences, there is not a goodwill effort to find common ground and that is an impossible way to govern a diverse, complex nation, especially when the two parties are roughly equal. I mean, if one party is much more powerful than the other, then it doesn't much matter because the bigger party is going to kind of get what they want. And for a long time, that was the case where the Republicans were kind of a permanent minority party. But I think that is a very, very dangerous feature of our system. And the battles over things like masks, which shouldn't have been a battle, the lack of preparedness, 
which I think comes from just a loss of faith in governance and government. These are all symptoms, I think, of this deeper problem, which is this tribal political partisanship. Do you think the difficulty that people have in engaging in productive conversation is is limited to the outside world or has it penetrated into academia? I mean, we like to think that in the ivory tower, we aren't subject to the same rules and, and problems as the outside world. But I think a lot of people would say that the academy is also kind of failing in its job to foster the ability to engage in productive conversations and that we're not really training our students to have these kinds of conversations. I think the academy is failing badly, both in challenging some of our students' assumptions. I mean, there's a great book, the Jonathan Haidt book, The Coddling of the American Mind, Mm -hmm. which talks about how somehow we came to believe that our job is to make our students comfortable, when in fact, we certainly want a welcoming environment for students, but there's nothing about education that should be comfortable, right? You should be challenged at every turn. So I think the academy has not done a very good job about bringing representative viewpoints to campus, about creating a space where everybody can speak. Lots of students talk to me about feeling self-censored, about not being able to say things that are even like left of center, let alone slightly right of center. So I think the academy is contributing to that problem. I think the one exception, having spent a lot of time at the University of Chicago, I do find that the University of Chicago is an oasis in that regard. There's a certain rigor and sensibility there where people are just better at challenging all assumptions and having hard conversations. And I would love to see that approach adopted more widely in higher education. Now, when I turn to your novel, You wrote this novel before the pandemic, is that right? Yes, I did. My novel (laughs) about a pandemic. The whole time I was reading it, I was like, this must have been written during the pandemic when you were kind of locked down. And then I realized, no, this was, I think it was in the afterword where you described how, oh yeah, you know, you went off on your sabbatical and you were traveling around and, and you were writing this thing. And I thought, wait a second, this was done in 2019. Correct. And barely a day goes by where there isn't some aspect of the novel that manifests itself in real life. I mean, the book is called The Rationing, which speaks to this large discussion about who's going to get the vaccine. It's a slightly different kind of vaccine, slightly different kind of pandemic. But the idea is there's not enough to go around, Mm -hmm. which, of course, doesn't make me a genius. That's going to be true pretty much any time. You've got a major outbreak and limited capacity to deliver life-saving medicine. But I thought as a policy person, this is a question we should address. And I would point out that even though we're deep into the distribution of the vaccine, our discussions about who gets it first have been pretty shoddy. And it's been different in different places. And so we've never really had that hard discussion about who deserves to get it. Old people, yes, because you save lives, but if you gave it to teachers, you could send kids back to school. You might ultimately do more good, social good that way. Those are discussions that maybe we had implicitly, but certainly not explicitly. There's all kinds of stuff that once I created the pandemic in the novel, I just imagined how political actors would respond. And by and large, that's exactly what happened. Well, what's interesting is that that conversation takes place for the most part behind closed doors in the novel. And even though we haven't had an explicit conversation, it seems like that conversation is its almost impossible to imagine policymakers having these discussions behind closed doors. The other thing that I found interesting about the novel is that, for the most part, the policymakers in the book are 
publicly minded. So did you have a difficult time imagining a group of public minded, civic minded, well-intended political characters given the moment when you were writing this? Well, remember, we hadn't been through COVID, so I was still a little more optimistic than I am now. I hadn't seen us hit bottom as a country. Part of the reason I wrote the book was an homage to politicians and faceless bureaucrats. So as you probably noticed the book, the more important the person in the novel, the less likely they are to have a name. They have a position. There's a president. There's a secretary of state. And that was quite deliberate, which is to say someone's always going to do these jobs. And it's a strategist didn't have a name. The strategist. Right, right, right. Everybody's favorite character, the strategist. Part of my point with the book was, look, these people are not perfectly public minded, but mostly there's still all kinds of self-interest manifesting itself. But for the most part, they're trying to do the right thing. And their decisions are not perfect, but they're not terrible. And they kind of keep pushing towards a solution that does kind of ultimately work out. And there's actually a speech that the narrator gives that is kind of the kernel of the book, which is to say, you know, maybe that's the way it always is. It's imperfect people acting imperfectly, but with mostly good motives, muddling through. And in a lot of cases, that's good enough. And I would argue in our current situation, we haven't even mustered that, which is, that's really my source of current disappointment. At the end of this book, you say that we should strive to be solid and not great. I don't hear too many parents saying that to their kids nowadays. I mean, there's, there's a, an immense amount of pressure for, for kids. At least they imagine there's a, a great deal of pressure to be great. Is this psychologically impairing people? Is it preventing them from achieving what they could be achieving? I think it's debilitating. It's horrible. We talk a good game about experimenting and being willing to fail. And then, of course, if you get one B plus in high school, you're not going to get into Yale. Yale's going to talk a big talk. And then they're going to draw a line at like 3.92. And if you experimented with chemistry and got an F, you're not going to Yale. I'll tell you a story, actually. So when I was in grad school at the University of Chicago, I had Jim Heckman as a statistics professor. As an aside, he's a brilliant economist, not a great statistics professor. The econ program at Chicago had strict curves. So the number of A's and F's was about the same. There are a lot of people who were asked to leave the program. So a C was, in many cases, a fantastic grade. Well, I got a D as in dog in Heckman's statistics class, and I was elated. <laughs> so fast forward 25 years, I actually gave my students a quiz last week, and it was about early childhood education. And Jim Heckman has gone on to do a lot of work in the field of early childhood. So they read a lot of Heckman stuff. And there was a like a super bonus question at the end of the quiz worth zero points. And I actually said, this is worth zero points. And the question was, true or false, your professor had Jim Heckman for statistics, got a D, and was so happy about the D that he did a little dance when the grades were posted. And what my students answered was, well, first of them, because they're great test takers, they said, this seems very specific. It must be true. Like they didn't even process the substance of it. They're just so <laughs> used to taking exams that they kind of recognize what's true. But then they said, the most common answer was, I really hope it's true because I want to know <laughs> that Professor Whelan got a D and it still came out okay. It was an emotional yeah. response. And I think that really gets to your question, which is they want to know that it's okay if they hit a bump, but they don't believe that it will be. Yeah, I got plenty of C's, <laughs> some in fields that I, I currently teach. 
But you mentioned the kind of the arms race and this idea, starting from very early in life, that children are trapped in this arms race that just continues throughout life. And if you believe in the hedonic treadmill, which takes us back to your happiness economics, this is ultimately a disaster in waiting, right? It is. I mean, travel sports would be an example. We're lucky enough that we've moved to Hanover, New Hampshire, which is like moving to 1950 without the baggage. So my kids who are among the least athletic people you're ever going to meet, because they go to a small school that, to its credit, does not overestimate. So it, it emphasizes sports as being really important to the high school experience, but does not encourage kids to play in the offseason. In fact, there's a special award for everybody who plays three different sports. The old three-season athlete that has been driven to extinction in most places my daughter's crew coach gave a speech at the banquet saying, I would prefer if you don't row crew in the off season because I don't want you to get hurt and I would much prefer that you try something else. The irony is that this is so much healthier that here I've got these kids who are relatively untalented and collectively they've played like nine or 10 varsity sports. My son was the starting varsity goalie and he'd never played soccer before high school. And as a result, they have a much healthier relationship. They find more joy in the sports than I see in my Dharma students who've been playing something since they were five, who are recruited athletes and arrive here just so burned out by the one thing that has consumed a disproportionate amount of their life. Are there any policy interventions that could constrain this type of behavior, this type of competition? I mean, I think when you think about happiness economics, there's a lot of it which is just about personal decisions, decisions that you can make as an individual or maybe decisions you can make as a parent or decisions you can make as a manager. But at the societal level, are there any policies that can constrain the kind of zero-sum competition? It's a good question because a lot of parents are caught up in it. You say, well, unless my son or daughter plays ex-traveling league in the off-season, they won't be able to play anything at all. And if they don't play anything at all, they won't have any sports for college applications. So they're kind of caught in this system. Your question is a good one, which is, all right, well, you got to change the system or form a union. There is some irony that professional athletes are better protected than eight-year-olds. Why is it that baseball players aren't practicing in February? Well, maybe pitchers and catchers. It's because the union gets together and in negotiating with the owner says, by the way, we're going to limit the number of practices for everybody. We're going to limit the arms race. So I do think that high schools could do things to really crack down on practicing in the off season. Maybe even some requirements around you can't play on the high school team if you're doing X amount of activities, travel teams, things like that. Encouraging three season athletes so that the baseball coach can't tell you that you can't play a sport in another season as they now do, can't require you to practice out of season. So I think it's gonna take those kinds of institutional changes, but then at the end of the day, it does take a mindset change that you gotta, somehow we gotta remind ourselves that the reason we do these things is to make friends, to get exercise for healthy competition. And that's certainly not what these teams are currently emphasizing. You mentioned that when you were young, you played street hockey and tried to avoid the cars. And I couldn't help but laugh because I did the same thing. And I guess that's because we're the same age. But presumably kids today don't engage in this type of behavior. The parents are very concerned about the risks that they might be running. And so some people say this is going to make it difficult for them to develop resilience or toughness. You mentioned that 
they're generation snowflake and we're generation marshmallow. Yeah. Our parents gave us sharp objects and a lighter and said, come back in time yeah. for dinner. I remember I walked to school when I was in kindergarten. That's what I did. I was three feet tall. And other than a crossing guard, nobody was terribly worried about me. I do think, I don't want to gloss over the significance of this. To go back to that book I referenced earlier, The Coddling of the American Mind, Haidt and Lukanoff, who the authors do make a lot of the fact that this unstructured play is really important to development. That's how we develop a lot of our mediation skills. As I said, when Greg Franklin punches Duffy McIlvain in the nose at 10 o'clock, we got two choices. We can either figure this out or we can go get an adult involved, in which case our day is over. And so what do you do? You force an apology, you stop the bleeding, and you go on. And I do think that's an important set of skills that are not necessarily developed if your every activity has a referee and parents and snacks and all the no one was giving us snacks. I mean, I think we were reading tree bark or something like that, or foraging from whoever's parents were at home. I do think that's a really important point. Is the unstructured play that's disappeared similar to the unstructured curiosity that you could have in university or in school? You mentioned Steve Jobs, and, and I don't think that's really a perfect example because he dropped out in order to do it. But, yeah, right. but if unstructured play allows you to think in new ways and become more creative, Presumably unstructured inquiry, unstructured education can also offer similar benefits. I agree. And I, I think it also allows you to kind of marry educational opportunity with passion to kind of wander around and find the place where it just doesn't feel as much like work. And for me, that's what writing felt like is I just loved writing. It's never easy in the moment. But that was just something that I discovered as I kind of started out as an Asian studies major and did other things and went to graduate school. But what I kept coming back to is I really enjoyed and discovered I was good at describing things in ways that were understandable for others. And that wasn't a direct path. I didn't learn that in a writing class. I didn't learn it in a writing camp. You know, my parents didn't send me away to writing school. It was just something that I figured out through disparate experiences that added up to a very solid grounding in writing about substantive things. So it was a direct line from writing speeches for the governor of Maine directly into uh, writing this book. Direct line is a very strong, strong term. One can draw a wavy dotted line. It is all connected. You know, I, I wrote speeches for the governor, but I realized I didn't have a solid enough grasp of the policies that we were talking about. That drove me back to graduate school in public policy. I realized that I loved public policy. I didn't like the math. I was actually quite skeptical that the math and the models were sufficient to explain what was going on in the world. As I often say, people aren't starving because we can't do the calculus right. It's much more complicated than that. And the math, I think, is often creates a false sense of simplicity. And along the way, I realized that I was better at describing in words things that other people relied on, including my professors, to describe with calculus or math. And I'll give you the moment where I realized I might actually be able to make money doing it. I was in math camp at Princeton, and only those who were not great at math got sent to math camp. So this was like a, a primer before we started the formal graduate program. And the TA was explaining to us why the sum of an infinite sequence can be bounded and approximate a finite number. 
And so all the rest of us, our heads are exploding. How can a sequence that goes on forever, one plus a half plus a quarter plus an eighth plus a sixteenth plus a thirty-second, that goes on forever. And yet it is bounded by two, I think, if I've done the math right. And so everyone's just looking slack-shot. And there is a formula to prove it with like 99N and 1N and you subtract things. And she's like, look, and eyes are glazing over. And finally the light bulb goes off because Will Warshower is just saying nothing that goes on forever can be finite. It's just impossible. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. If you stand two feet from a wall and you move half the distance to a wall foot and then half a distance again, six inches, and then half a distance, three inches, and then an inch and a half, that sequence goes on forever. At some point you'll be one, one trillionth of an inch, you'll move. But since you started two feet from the wall and you never reached the wall, it is bounded by two feet. So if that effectively approximates two feet. And Will Warshower's like, oh, I get it. And I'm like, okay, well, forget the math. <laughs> I can explain that. And of course, ever after, it made complete sense to me. So that turns out, had I not gone to math camp, I might never have figured out I had that skill and you might not be holding naked statistics. And in this book, you talk about the time when you spent a year abroad before coming back to an uncertain future. And I think you point to that, that year as being very formative. Would you recommend that people take time off when it's affordable, when it's possible to do things like that, not just right after yeah. high school or college? I think it's the most important thing that I did in my life. So just to provide some background, after I graduated from Dartmouth in 88, I persuaded my then girlfriend, now wife of 20 lots of years, 29 years, that we should go around the world. And we paid for it ourselves. So we graduated in June worked menial jobs until October, until we had enough cash for nine-month trip, which, by the way, was about the same as a Honda Civic. It actually wasn't that much money. And then we took off and went west and traveled around the world. In the process, we were in China in 1989 before Tiananmen, but we got to see the same kind of unrest and crackdown in Lhasa, Tibet. We were in Eastern Europe, not when the wall came down, but when the cracks were emerging, the fence came down between Hungary and Austria. The books that had been illegal all during the Cold War, like Animal Farm in 1984, became legal. So all these little booksellers popped up in Budapest selling these previously banned books. I wrote stories for a local newspaper, so it became professionally a way for me to break in because I now had journalism clips. But I also learned so much about myself and the world that it was invaluable. And let me point out that to a person, our friends at Dartmouth thought it was a terrible idea. My parents thought it was a terrible idea that I would never rejoin the workforce. They thought I would come back as a drug-addicted hippie. All of my friends who'd gone through recruiting, who'd caught each other to get jobs at McKinsey and investment banking thought it just didn't fit the mold. And of course, ironically, turned out to be the most important thing that I did. Years later, people will say, oh, you're so lucky to have done that. And it is certainly true that I was lucky to be privileged, to have a university degree, to be able to find a job when I came back and so on. But I wasn't lucky to have taken the trip. That was a choice that many of those folks could have made as well. And you may or may not know, so we did this again as a family. So in 2016, we took off and went around the world, the five of us, nine months, six continents, three teenagers, and reprised the whole thing. And believe me, it's harder with teenagers. But again, it was a remarkable, remarkable experience. What I liked was the reaction of your wife's recruiter. <laughs> it's interesting. She actually played chicken. So my wife got a job with Bain, the very prestigious consulting firm. 
I did not have a job beforehand. And she went to Bain and said, look, I would like to defer my offer for a year, which was a perfectly reasonable request because Bain hired a new cohort of people every year. It's just like college admissions. Nobody really cares if you take a gap year because they're going to have another thousand people next year. But Bain, in part, I think, for lack of imagination, said, no, you can't do it. You have to decide between traveling around the world or coming to work for us, which was a very short-sighted decision. There were some tough discussions with me and with Bain, and but ultimately she said, all right, well, I'm going to travel and I'll just take my luck. And of course, as soon as we got on a plane and flew west and kind of effectively called their bluff, Bain said, okay, okay, you can start next year. You just have to re-interview with somebody. So I think in Hong Kong or someplace like that, she had to go in. It was mostly a face-saving thing to meet with some Bain partner who'd not even been briefed on why she was there. He, she kind of walked in. And he's like, who are you and why are you here? And Leah explained, well, I have a job and I decided to travel around the world. And he's like, that's so cool. Tell me about your trip. And that, that was the end of it. She joined them the next year. And I think she would say it was a fundamental experience for her as well. And I think my favorite story in the book was the man you encountered while hitchhiking in California. Yeah, I mean, this is why you travel, because the world's a really interesting place, including the United States. And this is remains to me a very uplifting story. So we tried to hitchhike from San Francisco to L.A. We had flown into San Francisco. We had tickets out of L.A. And we had great faith in our ability to hitchhike. Our faith exceeded the actual reality. So we hitchhiked the first day. I think we got to like Salinas, which isn't very far. And then eventually we got to San Luis Obispo. And it, it turned out that we were just not going to be able to hitchhike all the way to L.A. We still had, I think, over 200 miles to go. But we needed to get to the bus station so we could take a bus to Los Angeles Airport. So we hitchhiked to the bus station. And this old guy stopped. He was easily 70 years old. He was very short, just over five feet. He was wearing a suit. He had this beautiful hair of gray hair. And he said, where are you going? And we said, to the bus stop. And he said, yeah, where are you going? And we said, to the bus stop. And he said, no, 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 but where are you going on the bus? And we said, to Los Angeles. And he, he really, I still remember it. He looked at his watch and he said, I'll take you to Los Angeles. And mind you, it's 200 miles away. Like now you're thinking, this is crazy. He's crazy. We're going to end up on one of those true crime shows. But this is one where my intuition was not far off. I'm looking at this guy and he's just urbane looking. And he's really kind. He's got this European accent that I can't place. Like every bone in my body is saying, this is just a sweet gentleman who wants to do us a favor. So he says, well, I'm going to change my clothes. So we got to go back to my house first. And of course, only two 22-year-olds would agree to that. So we go back. And in his house, he's got posters of every American president, irrespective of party, from JFK through Reagan, because we had not yet had the election of 88. And we're looking at this thinking like, there's no pattern here whatsoever, other than a lot of red, white, and blue. Sure enough, he changes the clothes. We get in the car. We drive south. We stop for frozen yogurt. We stop to rest in the shade. We stop to wade in the Pacific Ocean. We have this delightful drive. And at some point, one of us asks, like, why are you doing this? Like, this is a very kind thing. We're not complaining, but it's going to take you like four or five hours there and four or five hours back. And he said, well, as you were standing on the side of your road, I was 22, I was thin, I had a crew cut for traveling, I was tan, I was carrying a big pack. He said, you reminded me of the American GIs in World War II who liberated me from a concentration camp. And I feel that I owe a debt of gratitude to the entire country, and this is how I repay it. 
And then he dropped us at LAX and drove off. And I thought, wow, okay, even if nothing else happens on this trip, we've had an experience that I certainly didn't have in my four years of college. That's one of those stories where you wonder, would that happen today? I think everybody's on their phone. <laughs> they wouldn't even notice. It's true. And I'm not sure if I would hitchhike because it's one of those kind of networky effects where fewer people hitchhike yep. and it's less safe for those who do hitchhike. And I wouldn't want my kids hitchhiking, but boy, something is really <laughs> lost when that interaction goes away. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Charlie. Really great to talk to you. I just want to remind everybody, if you're looking for a pandemic novel... <laughs> We got one right here. Yeah. I'm not sure everyone's looking for a pandemic novel, but it is eerie to read when you remind yourself that it was written up to and including last week. So one of the things in the book, one of the storylines is people selling fake vaccines. And I just saw <laughs> last week that there are now counterfeit Moderna vaccines for sale online. And it was just one of many where I'm like, oh, one more thing where life has imitated art. Yeah. Well, if you're tired of books on the Black Death and if you're tired of books on the 1918 flu you can do something a little more recent. So, And also exactly. this one also, I found this one to be a lot of fun. Ten and a half things no commencement speaker has ever said. I'm sure that people are going to just steal from this for their own commencement speeches. For those of you who are interested in microeconomics, macroeconomics, or statistics, definitely check out the Naked series. It's like an MBA in a box. Yeah, I'm trying to get them to do the box set, but they keep pushing back on that. The Naked books. Exactly. You just have to write a couple more, and then we can have a whole, whole five or six of them. Thanks a lot, Charlie. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.